Welcome back to Cadence, a podcast where we explore what music can tell us about our minds. If you're white and straight and cisgender, Expressing yourself openly and finding art that reflects your experiences has been relatively easy for a very long time. But if you're marginalized, being able to say what you think and feel out loud and find art about lives like yours has been a lot more difficult. Throughout history, gay people, trans people, and anyone else who hasn't fit into their community's heteronormative boxes have had to find ways to cope with the oppression they've experienced and build their own communities or connections. For some, music has been a saving grace, a magnet drawing in like-minded people, and as we've talked about in previous seasons, providing the social glue to solidify friendships. From the beginning of time, I think music, it reaches places that nothing else reaches. That was really when it hit me that I can be whoever I want, I can say whatever I want, and I have a medium in which people will listen to me through. For as long as there has been music, there have been queer people making music. You look at fashion, you look at dance, pretty much any of the art forms or any art form, writing, painting, anything. Queer people have always been involved. That's Daryl Bullock, who writes about the history of queer music. If you look at the history of recorded music, gay people, LGBTQ people have been involved in that industry ever since it, ever since the dawn. You wouldn't have rock and roll without queer people. You wouldn't have indie music without queer people. You certainly wouldn't have disco or dance without queer people. It's never been a question of whether or not queer people were making music, but it has often been about whether or not queer people could be open about it while making music. What you had kind of immediately after the Second World War and and for 20 years afterwards is you still had LGBTQ people in the creative arts, but because of the way the industry worked, they weren't allowed to be open. It was assumed that if you were to be open about your sexuality, it would just mean the end of your career. That's why so many artists that we now know were lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, whatever, and we now accept them as 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 icons of our of our community at the time could not possibly be out because their managers were telling them if you do this your your career is over it's it's death to you there were people like liberace who you know who sued the daily mirror in in london because they tried to out him and and he you know stood in a court of law and said that he wasn't homosexual and then when he you know finally admitted to his homosexuality or was outed by the press you know many years later the daily mirror insisted on a refund it took until the 1960s thanks to changes in culture brought about by things like the growth of the civil rights movement and the women's movement and a burgeoning acceptance of sexuality for queer people in music to start speaking up. Decades later, there are still plenty of bigots shouting loudly. There are many places in this country where being honest about your gender identity or sexuality can really mess up your life. And this is a country that is comparatively accepting. There are many parts in the world where coming out as queer is essentially a death sentence. But in some places, progress has been made. Jean Ann Nichols is an associate professor of music education at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. 
I intersect with this topic in multiple ways. I am gay myself. I grew up at a time, I mean, I grew up closeted, and I grew up when that wasn't something you talked about very much. It's been an interesting time to be alive and to see the many changes that have come with the LGBTQ community over the years with things that I were, for me as a teenager, being deathly afraid to to say anything about or to come out or even to understand. I even have the language to understand as a 16-year-old to now see students at that same age very comfortable in their own skins, very out and about in the community. And I find that heartwarming and affirming. And so in Music Ed, we've the times have changed and we've had to change with that. Here's Rod Thomas, who makes music as bright light, bright light. I love listening to classical music, but I hated having to learn, you know, from sight reading and all this stuff, like the classical music pieces, which just had nothing to do with my interest. And then you associate that with being told off in music lessons, never quite getting that tempo right, and it just being a chore. And they didn't know how to make classical music seem exciting and for you to understand how amazing some of the composition is. It was just all like, oh, boring. You know, like if you're in school and you have like a terrible math teacher, you're like, math is awful, it's pointless. And then you're like, oh my God, I use it every single minute of my life when you're older because they don't teach you how to apply it. And I think if people had maybe explained classical music in relation to pop music, that would have been much more useful, but it just wasn't how the curriculum worked. Then there are the deeper issues of social and emotional learning that I think LGBTQ students can access through music education that they may not necessarily be able to access in school. One of Nichols' students was a woman named Rye Daisies, who is now a singer-songwriter living in Michigan. I often say that Rye knew exactly who she was the moment she was self-aware, but it was the rest of us that needed to go through transition, not particularly her. The work Gina and Nichols did with Rye was eventually turned into a paper and published in a scientific journal. It talks about how they met together for weeks and recorded all of their conversations. They looked deeply into Rye's history, going through old photo albums, school records, concert programs, her original songs. They talked about Rye's gender identity and her sexuality. The point of the study was to highlight the pivotal role that music can play in the lives of transgender students, especially as they seek community and ways of expressing themselves. And so she tells us in this study and that we did really together, I need to make that clear, and she tells me this story about uh, being at a place in her life where she'd participated in her school music ensembles and uh, all this all her life, and at the same time was, as a teenager, going through transition and enduring what, sadly, most transgender individuals in school often endure, which is haunting and bullying and a number of horrible things that would happen to her daily at school. Here's Rye. I've been living as a woman since I was, you know, in junior high school, but I never took hormones. It wasn't until about two years ago that I started hormone therapy. And really what started it was when I was doing the journal with Jean Ann. And 
exploring myself, I mean, really, that was like therapy. And in that, you know, at the beginning of our time together, I referred to myself as a cross-dresser because I had no, you know, there was no representation. I, I had nobody that I could look up to. I didn't even know I was transgender, even though I was transgender. I didn't even know what that meant. And then re-reading, you know, what, what Gina and I are working through, that was kind of when the realization set in that I just assumed, oh, well, I'm not on hormones. So, I mean, I guess that doesn't mean I'm transgender. And that was when I really came across and, and it hit me. Oh my gosh, you are a trans woman. You need to quit referring to yourself as a crossdresser because that's not who you are. Music and her work with Nichols helped Daisies come to terms with her identity. Music also helped give her a voice in the first place. I didn't have a lot of encouragement from other people about, you know, my identity. The encouragement came from the music. It didn't matter if you had on pants or a dress. If you can play your instrument, that's what mattered. So I think in, in those spaces, in the musical spaces, that was where I was able to get the respect that I was craving. She told me, you know, every day I had people telling me who I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to look. And, and it was just constantly every day, every day, every day. And she said, and I hadn't really had my say to myself. And she describes finding a time when she was able, she had a piano, I didn't have a piano at her home, but she was able to kind of craft circumstances in her life where she was able to have access to a piano. And she knew enough about music from her school music learning that she had grabbed a Tori Amos songbook and put it up on the piano um, because she loved Tori Amos's music and she understood how the clefs worked and she understood kind of how this would translate to the notes on the piano. And so worked very hard at trying to teach herself piano using a Tori Amos songbook, which I'm sure is alarming to most piano pedagogues, but there you have it. I started to realize that music can be a tool. It's this language that's it's primal. It Everybody understands it, even if you don't think you understand it. The music is in you. Your heartbeat, you know, it's the sound is in us. So for me, I wanted to be able to communicate in a way that other people would want to listen to. I, you know, I've always wanted to be an activist. I've always wanted to stand up for the the little guy. But how do you do that without, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, for transgender women, we come into the the angry trans woman trope. And and how do you avoid that? How do you get your thoughts across? How do you get your perspective out there without people thinking that you're angry? Or that you have a vendetta to fill or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's something that trans women have to deal with every day. And it makes sense that music was a way for daisies to sidestep it. Research has shown that music is a way in which we can process our own emotions to figure out what we're feeling. Because after all, emotions are a lot more complicated than they seem at the surface. Oftentimes, we don't even really know what we're feeling until we analyze it. It's a struggle to know who you are on the inside and to be doing everything that you can to express that in a, in a positive way and to have people not see, you know, what you're trying to radiate out. That was, that was really tough for me. And that took, honestly, you know, that's where music came in because for me, I was able to explore myself, for starters, 
but also to try to explore other people and other people's uncomfort and indifference towards who I was. And that almost made it a little bit easier for myself to deal with that because I, I came back to, you know, I'm dealing with this. What are they dealing with? What's making them, you know, react towards me the way that they are? So for the LGBT students, whether it was myself as a 16-year-old or our, our current LGBTQ students in music classrooms across the country, music is this great educator, I think, of our emotional selves of our and of our social selves. But emotionally, we understand ourselves better because music expresses oftentimes things which we find inexpressible. Because I suppose if we could express it, we would say it. But if we can't say it, then there's music. For music educators, it takes on a certain immediacy that if we are doing our jobs well, we're providing our students with the tools which through music they are able to create a self, to have these long conversations with themselves, to work with the emotional materials and to create order and make sense of it. I have another colleague uh, wrote that, you know, folks might take a math class or they sit in an English class, but they join the band and they sing in the choir, that there is this connection and for a lot of LGBT students that are involved with music, those choirs, bands, orchestras, and other community music making are some of the very stuff that helps them negotiate and feel connected and strengthened in order to face the other parts of their life. For students that are marginalized or isolated at other times during the school day, it can be a lifeline. And while Rye continues to make music, the music industry hasn't yet caught up with people like Nichols. Selling music as a trans woman is still hard. I just dropped my new album, Monstrous, in July. And when I was writing for the album, I had written it, recorded it, and I was looking for a producer. And I searched from Detroit to Chicago. I was sending out email after email after email, and I kept getting almost the same response, which was, your music's pretty cool, but we don't want to attach our name with a transgender artist. Sorry. Actually, on a whim, emailed a woman whose music I've been listening to since I was a teenager. Her name is Angel M. And uh, we were kind of internet buddies. And so she's like, well, hey, why don't you send your stuff to me? <laughs> so long story short, one of my teenage sheroes is now my producer. She is a witch. that creating music with people who accept you makes is long-lasting and extends far beyond school. Group music making in particular both relies on and increases levels of the attachment hormone oxytocin. When people are given oxytocin, say through a nasal spray, they move their bodies more in sync with music and with each other. There's also evidence that music boosts endogenous opioids in the brain. Yeah, that's the same system that underlies the opioid crisis. So you can imagine how strong it is and that this system plays a role in the social bonding that is enhanced by grooving to music with others. 
But it's not just neurochemical release and foot tapping that synchronizes across people. We see entrainment to the beat, and therefore to anyone else tracking the beat, in brain waves, breathing rates, heart rates, and other body rhythms. Choral singing in particular seems to be really effective in bringing body and brain rhythms into group synchrony. Here's Tim Selig, the current artistic director and conductor for the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. I began in in the womb of the Southern Baptist Church. Mom and dad were both professional Baptists. And I was um, encouraged to perform right on the piano bench for all the family and friends. I grew up uh, and did all the things that a good Southern Baptist boy is supposed to do. I actually became an opera singer. Uh, that was that was okay. Mom and dad thought I could minister through opera singing, but I was also uh, working as a minister of music on the side to really make enough money to raise two children and keep my wife in the style which she was accustomed. But I was living a lie, and the first 35 years were amazing. I learned a lot about myself, of course. The major thing I didn't learn was to tell the truth. And I watched music be used in the church um, as a vehicle, and I decided I would never use it in that way again. So at 35, um, I was the Associate Minister of Music of the First Baptist Church of Houston and on the faculty of Houston Baptist University when I came flinging out of the closet. And it was a, a, you know, a small mega church of 22,000 members. And so it was, um, uh, it was quite public and quite dramatic. And I ended up with nothing, literally nothing, moved into a Motel 6. And then I realized that I was not really left with my, nothing. I had this incredible music to serenade me. And I woke up and thought, well, I should do that. I should do some music. Walking into the audition for a gay men's chorus blew my mind. I, I had come from this whole 35 years and it had crumbled before my very eyes. And I walked into this room and we were making music with no shame and no guilt and no hymns. It was awesome. I, it's just, and so I, for the last almost 35 years, I have been able to bring that experience to the hundreds of people, both men and women, in my choruses throughout these years and watch them as they would walk in a rehearsal and realize that they were home. Music is a wonderful catalyst for bringing people together, for, for helping people find their tribe, to find their community. When I grew up in school, my first instrument was the flute, like desperately uncool. And I was just stuck in classical music, which just bored the hell out of me. And I, I didn't get it. I didn't get what music could do in terms of making it because the only thing I was able to do was play all of these like ultra dry, like turgid musical pieces, which meant nothing to me. And then you hear dance music and you're like, wow, this is instrumental and this means everything to me. And then you're like, oh, I can play an instrument and do something that shakes my life without 
having a word as well. And that's when you're like, right, okay, music is amazing. What can I do with it? Whenever you go into a a gay bar or a gay club or a, a LGBTQ bar or club, there's always a soundtrack. There's always music playing. And, and it kind of helps to bind people together. It helps to cement relationships and it helps certainly younger people come into terms of their sexuality and coming out on the scene it will help them find like-minded people so for that reason that soundtrack the music that those clubs and bars are playing is incredibly important music just touches us in such a deep way therefore it translates to the people in the audience that's Don Harms, music director and conductor of the Bay Area Rainbow Symphony, or BARS. One thing she points out is that a symphony of queer people can affect the audience in ways that other symphonies may not. BARS is really cool because it actually changes people's lives. And it sounds a little, again, Pollyanna, but it, it does. It changes people who are playing the music because of the suffering. And it changes the audience's minds and hearts, those who maybe had a question. We're just people. For symphonies like bars, the audience isn't just being moved by music. They're being moved by music being played by people who they know are queer. It's a big deal. I don't want to think we're just this downer orchestra, but it really is through the depths of music that we're able to express this pain. And it becomes a joy at the end. Because, you know, to me, the bookends of pain is joy. The whole history of gay and lesbian choruses is fascinating because it started out as a party like we're going to party and we're going to sing. And then when the AIDS pandemic uh, hit, the choruses became the the consolers and the healers and the caregivers. And they grew up. What came out of that was this activist part. So as far as I'm concerned, the chorus has always done a, a really amazing job of taking care of the twins. And the twins are activism and art or music and mission, whichever you want to use, but we feed them every day. Every single day we get up and we go, okay, how would you make our art better? And how do we achieve our mission of changing people and the world? When you're in the, you know, the band room, it's not about who you are or what you look like. It's about the talent and the drive and the ambition. So for me, that was my only chance that I really got to shine. There was, you know, I did pretty well in my other classes, but that was the one place that I wasn't judged. I wasn't treated any differently. It was about, can you play this piece or can you not? And I think that's, I think that's pretty powerful, you know, to, to have a space that kids can come in and, you know, leave the troubles of the world behind them. You know, it sounds a little silly, but it's true. It's true when you're going through a rough patch at home or in the community or in life or whatever and, and you come together and you're in the group of people and you all are working towards the same goal to, you know, play this piece beautifully, you're creating magic together. And I think it's a little bit harder to hate somebody who is helping to create that magic with you. The takeaway is that having an opportunity to create music is powerful. And hearing yourself represented in music that other people make is powerful too. When I was growing up in the Welsh coal mining valleys where absolutely nothing happened, I was looking 
probably subconsciously at television, film and radio as a, a way to learn about the world outside of my immediate surroundings, right? So all around me, there was like greenfield, a bungalow, a farm, that's it. So I learned a lot about probably who I wasn't from listening to music and watching things like Top of the Pops. And that's how I learned about a lot of artists. But I didn't have anyone that I thought was, I wouldn't say a role model, but I didn't see anybody that I related to. So I knew that I wasn't, in quotation marks, normal, which was white straight. And I knew that I wasn't quite that. And none of the role models who were like out, uh, Andy Bell and Elton John, they were so fabulous and so otherworldly. I felt so normal. So I thought, I can't be like them. I don't know what I am then. They were all these kind of very fabulous, very confident, very flamboyant performers who could command a room. And I didn't feel like that as a kid. So I think I really struggled for many, many, many years to understand what I was and what I wasn't and how I fit into their story. I think I'm constantly surprised by the emotion that music pulls out of me, to be honest. One of the first pieces that I really, really remember was Mars and in, in 5-4 time. And I just, I just loved playing that. And I felt like strong and powerful. And I was just rocking out on the xylophone. And I remember thinking like, this is what music is supposed to be. This is what it's supposed to be like. This is how it's supposed to make you feel strong, not weak, strong. I had a person when I moved to San Francisco knew of my classical roots and they said, well, I hope you're not bringing you know, that flamboyant kind of music to the stage. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I am. I was not allowed for 35 years to use a boa. You're going to see it on the stage. So just get, get ready for it. There is something to be said about the fact that gay and lesbian people are put into this box to be in the closet and suppress your emotions from the, our whole spectrum. And boy, when we break loose, it's joyous, even with the pain that we experience. Music isn't monolithic. However you're feeling, whatever you're going through, music has the potential to help you through it. We know that music is listened to for many different reasons. We also know that there are many different neurotransmitter systems involved in these different uses of music. For example, when music is helping us get up and move around, we see higher levels of dopamine in our motor regions, among other places. And oxytocin that we've already talked about helps us bond with each other. When music is helping us exercise, we see higher levels of endorphins. When music helps us focus, we see activation in parts of the frontal cortex and the parietal lobe that are involved in paying attention. So just as we use music for different purposes, we can see just as many different signatures and traces of music's effects on our brains. Use your voice. However you see fit to use your voice, if it's through a trumpet or singing tenor, everybody has something to say. Everybody has a story to tell. Everybody's story is different and unique and beautiful. So find your community, find your safe zone, and let it out. Be as loud as you can. There's literally no one on the planet that hates music. There might be 10 people and we don't want to know them or invite them to dinner. It's just the carrier 
for the most beautiful and poignant and important messages in our lives. There are always going to be kids that need that comfort. There are always going to be kids that are beaten up. There are always going to be kids that are picked on. There are always going to be kids that are bullied or that their parents don't understand them or that their churches don't understand them or whatever that are going to need to be comforted by playing that MP3 or sticking on that disc or whatever else it might be and appreciating that someone out there gets them. Find a way to express yourself because if you can't, it's just going to grow inside of you. You have to let it out. Let the world dump shit on you and grow flowers from it. Don't become a mud puddle. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cadence. You can find us online at theensembleproject.com slash cadence or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support us at patreon.com slash cadence podcast. Cadence is produced by Adam Isaac and me, Andre Viscontis. We also created and write the show. Our intro and outro come from acclaimed New Zealand producer Rian Sheehan. We also featured music by Rye Daisies and Bright Light, Bright Light in this episode. Additional production help for this episode came from Katie Lindhart and Scott Lowry. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Viss. Cadence is generously supported by the Germanicos Foundation. 